Well, it's been long enough that I can't remember if we stand for the reading of the sermon text or not, but I, I want to say let's stand, but if we've changed that, let me know. Okay, we've not changed that. Okay. Let's stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Hopefully that's as rusty as I'll be. John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated as we ask him for his help in prayer once more. Lord God, we come to a portion of your word today that although uh, it may be familiar to us, it points up our inadequacy to take in all that you are in your glory and majesty. But we know that you've promised in your very word that you'll guide us by your Holy Spirit, that the words on these pages will be illumined to our hearts and that we'll understand things today from your gospel, from your word that we haven't understood before or that we need to see in a fresh new way. So help us with that, Lord. Help us to see you, Lord, and to hear you preached in every word that follows, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you today uh, with, our, with our church family who we've come to know and love since we, since we first met uh, through the grace of our Lord who brought us together a, a little over five years ago now. And I can tell you that the friendship we know with you, that Mary and I know with you, is one of the great joys of our lives. I want you to know that. We're grateful for your fellowship for your love, for your faithfulness to the Lord. That is a great encouragement, not only to us, but to the people who know of you. Uh, and for your prayers on our behalf, really appreciate that. Uh, we pray for you regularly, and we're so thrilled. Uh, and I wasn't going to mention this, but I came to you five years ago as a Baptist pastor, and today I was installed as an elder at First Pres Church up in Trenton. Um, and so the reason I mention that is I see that uh, at Gateway down in Finley, Taylor's exam will be for ordination. So I think I want to go to that. I think I got a little stake in that, don't I? <laughs> so I think I, wanna, I think I want to go to that. I'm going to have to ask my pastor if I can go. I think I can go. I think that's one of the rules, right? So 
But to, to, to know that God is sending you your very own pastor uh, is a really great thrill to us. To, to a man to know you and love you and minister God's word to you, to walk with you uh, through the joys and sorrows of life, and, and we trust that his ministry here among you will be as fruitful for him as, as I know it will be for you. Well, we turn our, our attention to John's gospel and to John chapter 14, which I thought would be good for us to look at uh, together today because it speaks so much to the need of these very days in which we live, given all the challenges and troubles that we face. Jesus knows, and we see it in verse 1, that Jesus knows, doesn't he, that the hearts of his people can be troubled, can be troubled. And troubled hearts are what he's addressing in this section of scripture that we look at today. The men asking the questions that, that, that spur the passage on are troubled men, just as we're troubled men and women. And so this is a great passage to look at today. Some of us may remember the days um, when in times of troubled hearts, in times of national tragedy, that the President of the United States uh, would address the people, that's part of the job, really an acknowledgement of the fact that in such troubling times, our hearts can be troubled. And the idea in those kind of monumental national times, the idea is to address the people in order to calm our troubled hearts. As some of us may be old enough to remember, it was 36 years ago, almost to, to the week in a couple of weeks here, 36 years ago on a cold January afternoon when President Reagan, who had actually intended that night to give his State of the Union address to the Congress, instead postponed that and set that aside. And that afternoon he went on television, uh, which at the time was all there was besides radio, right, to communicate with. He went on television and addressed the whole nation. Why? Because the whole nation had watched that day. The whole nation was troubled because we had watched that day as the Space Shuttle Challenger horrifically just over a minute into flight, into launch, exploded and broke apart, ultimately killing all seven astronauts aboard, one of whom was actually a school teacher. You remember that? And all this unfolded on television right before our very eyes, right before even the very eyes of school children watching across the country. And the president comes on to address a troubled nation. Now, why did the president address the nation that day? He did it because the hearts of the American people were troubled. The people for whom the president was responsible had troubled hearts. And the president went on television that afternoon and spoke very tenderly and very inspiringly to us. The president can, in such times, offer calm, can offer condolence, the president can inspire and maybe even soothe troubled hearts. But the one thing the president cannot do, the one thing the president can never offer, is what Jesus can. And that is to cure the troubled hearts of his people. Because according to Jesus here in verse 1 of our passage, the cure for a troubled heart is only one thing, belief in Jesus. Let not your hearts, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in me, he says. But believe in what about Jesus? What are we to believe about Jesus? What's he talking about here? Well, that's what he addresses here in chapter 14 in his responses to two questions, really, 
that's as far as we'll get, that are asked by two of his troubled-hearted disciples. The trouble had started, you see, in the end of, uh, of chapter 13, with the disciples realizing that, according to Jesus, he's about to leave them. He said to them, if you look at the end of verse 33 of chapter 13, he said, where I am going, you cannot come. And that was troubling. And Peter, obviously troubled by this, says to Jesus in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 13, where are you going? Why can't I follow you there? He doesn't get it. He's troubled by Jesus leaving them. And what Peter didn't understand then was that Jesus was saying, you can't follow me because I'm speaking of going to the Father, but going by way of crucifixion and then resurrection. The way he is going is a way that only he can go in order to secure eternal life for all who will believe in him. But he's going, and he's telling them that, and they don't get it. This is the context in which chapter 14 is happening. The disciples are confused. They're anxious. It's becoming obvious to them that Jesus is leaving them, and they don't know where he's going or why. They've left everything to follow him. These guys gave everything up to follow him. They, they followed to, to follow him, to know him, to be with him. And now he's saying that he's leaving them? You get where they're at. They're very troubled by this. And Jesus, and then in his first part, in this first part of chapter 14, he starts laying out the implications of him leaving them and the resulting anxiety and stress that they obviously feel over him leaving them. And he says they're to take comfort for their troubled hearts in the fact that they can believe in him. And he unfolds what that means. Believe what about him? He unfolds that in three sections that we'll look at today. We'll look completely, I hope, at kind of two sections. One of them will maybe get to next time in February, but these three sections that he explains what they, can, what they are to believe about him are unfolded in verses 1 through 4 as one section where he talks about preparing a place for them. He's talking about heaven. Uh, that's the one I hope we can talk, talk more about in February. Then in verses 5 through 7, in his exchange with Thomas, answering the questions about the way to heaven. And then in verses 8 through 11, the last section, in his exchange with Philip about seeing the Father. Philip hears Jesus answer to Thomas about knowing the Father, and Philip wants to know how we can really know, how can we see the Father. These are concerns and questions, not asked out of curiosity, but asked out of perplexity. Out of the disciples feeling as if Jesus is leaving them hanging. Their souls are troubled. They have no idea what's ahead, and they have probably a nagging doubt in them that although they thought they knew Jesus, although they thought they knew him, they must be realizing by now that they really don't actually know him the way they should. And I think the clue we have that the disciples by now are on to the fact that they don't know him very well is you see Jesus says it straight to him in his answers to both Thomas and Philip quickly in verse 7. He says, Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still not, do not know me, Philip? So don't you know me? You should have known me. And this is something we all feel, isn't it? That those of us who know Jesus in salvation and maybe even have known him a, such a long time in salvation, due to our own sin of ignorance and our own straying from him, we don't know him. Not the way we would like to. 
not the way we should. We never feel like we know him well enough. And then those of us who don't know him at all in salvation, maybe we don't know him because we have the wrong idea about who he is. The lies of this world, and maybe even the lies of the religious world circles that we may travel in, those lies have blinded us to who Jesus really is, and we don't really know Jesus. Because we don't know who Jesus really is according to his own words about himself, according to Scripture. Well, here is all of our opportunity today to see him, to see him, to see Jesus, in order to calm our troubled hearts and souls by believing in him. And it's almost as if, it, in the passage before us, today we, we have Jesus in his words to us, taking us up a high theological mountain, taking us up to the heights of Christology, to the heights of knowing who Jesus really is. If you think about the things he says in this passage, they are mind-blowing things. And he's walking us up a mountain. He takes us up a high mountain that reaches its pinnacle in the implications of what's contained in Jesus' answer to Philip in verses 8 to 11. So he's leading to that, verses 8 to 11. And that only after having reached the level of how Jesus has us see who he is in his answer to Thomas in verses 5 through 7. And all that built on the base of the mountain of the claim Jesus makes of what he's doing in verses 1 through 4. So in order to see it first from the heights, as Jesus has taken us up this mountain of who he really is, in order to see what Jesus is trying to emphasize here, I think it's best to actually do something a little different today and work backwards down through the sections of our passage today, backing down the mountain from the height, as it were, by looking first at Jesus' answer to Philip in verses 8 through 11, and then his answer to Thomas in verses 5 through 7, and then in his discussion of heaven and eternal life, really, in verses 1 through 4. So working backwards through the sections of the passage, we start at verse 8. We want to get to Philip's question because we spend, want to spend the most time on Philip's question. So Philip makes a request in verse 8 of Jesus because Jesus has talked about being the way to the Father. In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Just show us the Father, Lord. And notice Philip uses the word us. He's speaking as a spokesman for the other disciples. Show us the Father. And when he's speaking on behalf of the other disciples, he says, just show us the Father, Lord. That's, that's enough for us. Show us. Jesus says in verse 9, he, sets up his, he starts setting up his reply to Philip. He, he says that, in, it, look at it, it's, it's Pretty plain statement in the middle of verse 9, but it's pretty heavy. Whoever has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. But what Jesus is saying to his disciple here when he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, verse 9, what he's saying here, what Jesus is saying to his disciples here and to us is that in him and in him alone, they will see God the Father, really see him, fully and finally revealed. He says that you see the Father in a couple of ways. Uh, but first, in, in the way that he starts talking about start, he starts talking about a claim to deity. He describes himself as divine. If you see it again in the middle of verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who but God could make that claim? That is a claim that he, Jesus himself, has an absolute identity. This is what he's saying to them. I have an absolute identity of being with God the Father, 
such that looking at Jesus, seeing Jesus, and really by coming to know Jesus, these disciples as they sit there can and should have, by now, come to know whatever they could know of God the Father. He's saying that he possesses within himself, Jesus does, an absolute identity with God the Father such that he, Jesus, has the same deity, the same divine quality as the Father has. Now this incidentally, by the way, is the beginning of uh, the church's understanding of the Trinity. This is the first part. Because although Jesus is claiming personal deity in his identity with the Father, he also is still making a distinction that he and the Father are separate persons, distinct persons of the Godhead who share fellowship in deity. But that's what he says here. He says, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And as if it, as if it weren't enough, in, in kind of, in that, and that's a, a massive statement, as if it weren't enough in climbing this mountain of who Jesus is, and we're already up in the heights here, aren't we, with this claim that he makes to deity. Now he goes even higher into rarefied error with this statement in verse 10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So now it's not only that I possess the deity of the Father, but I actually share, Jesus says, fellowship with the Father so much that I can say that I am in the Father and that he is in me. So you're Philip, and I think you're going, what? You think of it, you just ask Jesus to show you the Father. That's a pretty simple, show us the Father. And Jesus says in response, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am deity. I am in the Father, he is in me. You want to see the Father? Look to me. Now if what we said at the beginning is that Jesus is showing him us himself as the cure to a troubled heart, then what he's doing right here is probably just really twisting the troubled heart of Philip in knots because Jesus is saying this as though these guys should have known this by now. He's saying, you've been with me, you've seen me, you should know by now that to see me is to see the Father, but you don't. So there's a question for us here too, isn't there? for those who make a claim to knowing Jesus, and that's this, do we really know him like this? Do we really know him in this way where we see that his extraordinary claim here to deity, to fellowship with the Father, is something we know of him? Something we take hold of in him? Is it something that we believe in so fervently that we can take comfort for our troubled souls in knowing that above all else, our Lord Jesus is God, very God of very God, and he's revealed himself as that, in such a real way that we know that it's true and that we have fellowship with that Jesus, with that one who is the Son of God, the Father. It's difficult to grasp, but it's what the Lord does in a changed heart. And what does he do here? Speaking of heart, after maybe twisting Philip's heart in 10 different directions, but he maybe comes down a level because positively these guys are not getting this. We, 2,000 years later, are reading it and having a difficult time. Can you imagine these guys in initially hearing it? But he maybe comes down a level off the mountaintop theology here and says, Philip, my confused friend, maybe you can understand it this way. And that's what he's doing here in the middle of verse 10. He's saying, the words that I say to you, middle of verse 10, I do not speak on my own authority. 
but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And verse 11 is very important. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's talking here, Jesus is, about his own words and works. The works of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And that's what he's talking. And this is where maybe we can understand all this better too. It was certainly meant for Philip to understand. Philip, Philip who had, he and the others had been with Jesus these three years and has witnessed what he's done. Jesus is saying, think of the things I've said and done. The things I've said to you, the things you've seen me do, Jesus says, these words and works are not only my own, they are my own, but they're not only my own, they are my Father's. It's with his authority that I say and do what I say and do. It's the Father who dwells in me who does his work through me. So when he says in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, he's saying if you can hardly grasp what I'm claiming about my deity and my fellowship with the Father. If you can hardly grasp that, then at least understand it in terms of what you've seen and heard. And I think he probably means what you've seen and heard and marveled at these three years, right? You've seen me heal people. That's the Father. You've seen, you've seen and heard, you've heard me teach things that blow your mind. That's the Father. Don't you see, Philip, he's saying, don't you see that what you've seen and heard me say and do has done no less than show you the Father. All that has answered your request for me to show you the Father. I've already told you, I've already showed you. Now this is nothing new in John's Gospel. Jesus tries to show this all along. You can see this in John's Gospel. If you go back a little bit to John chapter 7, John 7, he does this in a, a, a few places. I'll name a couple to jot down, but we'll look at one. John chapter 7, um, in answer to this question of where Jesus gets his authority, he's got no advanced degree, and these guys are wondering, how does this guy know all this? How does this, how does this man who claims to be God, how does he know all this? Where does he get his authoritative teaching? Look at what Jesus says at the end of John 16. This is important. The end of John 7, 16. Did I say that? John chapter 7, verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So they're wondering where he gets his authority. They're wondering how he can teach what he teaches, and he says, it's not mine. It's his who sent me. He also says something similar, if you want to jot it down and look at it, in 828 and in 1249 of John's Gospel. Does it in many places. But 716, 828, 1249, he talks a lot about this kind of thing. And further, further, further on beyond where we are in our, in our text in John 14, back in John 14, the verses beyond what we read at the beginning, in verse 24, look at what Jesus says at the end of John 14, 24. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 14, 24, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And it's not only his words. It's not only Jesus' words. Jesus has also emphasized his works as being of the Father. Just listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 19. He says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's John 5, 19. 
This is really what Jesus is saying to Philip here in our verse 11, back in, in chapter 14. This is really what he's saying to Philip. He's saying, Philip, have you not heard the authority of the Lord God our Father in the things I've said? Haven't you seen his power in the things I've done? And the answer should be yes, just as it should be for us, for those who believe. Think of what the Lord Jesus did in your heart when he saved you. For those of us who know him, think of what he did. Think of the, the amazing things he did. He showed your hopeless state in sin without him. He convinced you of that. He convinced you that you could do nothing to save yourself. When he said he's the son of God who came to die on a cross and be resurrected, all to take the punishment for your sins and to bring you to the throne of Almighty God in salvation, you believed it and you repented of your sins and you trusted in him. That is a miraculous thing that only God can do. And so we've seen it. And this sort of thing Jesus is saying to Philip here when he points to his words and his works, he says, if you can't quite get these heights of the mountaintop theology of it, Philip, at least you can see the Father in me and what you with your own eyes and ears have seen and heard and know that he has done in your presence. So what has Jesus said here in answer to Philip when Philip says, show us the Father? He said that when you think of who Jesus is, when you look to Jesus and to belief in Jesus and what you need to cling to in your troubled heart, he says you need to understand this, that Jesus is indeed the full revelation of the Father. Jesus is indeed the full revelation of the Father. That's what he's saying to Philip. That's the crux of what he says in that top of the mountain of theology to Philip. Okay, now let's back down the mountain a little bit to the middle part. In verses 5 to 7, Jesus has addressed something else about who he is here in answer to Thomas. Thomas had asked a question that had led to this exchange with Philip. Now let's look at that. Jesus said in verse 4 that they know the way he is going. He means crucifixion, but they don't get it. Verse 5, Thomas says essentially to Jesus, Lord, we don't even know the way to, to where you're going. We don't even know where you're going, much less the way. How can we know the way? This is a quite, it's kind of a statement of exasperation, really. We have no clue what you're talking about. And Jesus' answer to Thomas is maybe a little less involved than his exchange up there with Philip, but it's no less extraordinary. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. You want to know about the way to where I'm I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a colossal thing to make this kind of statement. The magnitude of it is immense. It's an extraordinary claim that Jesus makes when he says, I am the way to the Father. And not only does he claim to be, to be the way, he claims to be the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's not something that's said today in polite company, is it, in our time? That there is only one way to God and that that way is Jesus. But Jesus says it right here. It's what we believe. Jesus says it. He says something that we can only begin to really grasp in light of what he then had gone on to say to Philip, that as the full revelation of the Father, he can then claim to be the only way to the Father. 
So that's why we started with the higher stuff. It, the only way that you can get to the Father is that he claimed to be the Father. He says there is, there is one way to the Father, one way to the God, and he says, I am that exclusive way, the truth and the life. No one, and that means no one. That means no one at all, no one ever, no one today, no one tomorrow, no one without exception comes to the Father, makes it to heaven, except through me. No one. That is an exclusive claim. But the point to us today is that you can come through him. He doesn't leave us with no way to the Father. Jesus presents himself as the way to the Father. In his person and in his work, he is presenting himself and saying, I am the only way, but I am the way. He doesn't leave us without hope. He says he is the way. So what has Jesus said now in his answers to these two disciples? See, there we spend a little less time on that one, okay? So what does he say in his answers? What's he said here? He's saying that when you think of who Jesus is, when you look to Jesus and to belief in him as what you need to cling to in your troubled heart, in order to know this Jesus, the way he's revealed himself to us, you really need to understand two things now. That Jesus is indeed the full revelation of the Father, yes, but also here that because he is the full re revelation of the Father, he's the only possible way to the Father. He's the true and only way. There's no name under heaven by which we may be saved. There's salvation in no one else but Jesus, Acts 4.12. And since he's the only way to the Father, Jesus says, since I'm the only and exclusive way by which you can come to the Father, do you see that I am the only way by which you can come to the Father and know him? Really know him? Because isn't that the thing he's been saying throughout the passage here? You need to know me. You need to know me in order to believe in me. You need to know me, verse 7. If you had known me, verse 7, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They saw him in the Jesus revealed to them in the flesh. We see him and know him in knowing the Jesus revealed to us in the Bible and in our lives by his Holy Spirit. And the Jesus revealed in the Bible is God. Which takes us back now to the very first section, the base of this mountain, in verses 1 through 4. Why was Jesus saying all this in his answers to Thomas and Philip? What was he acknowledging? What had led him to this discussion? What had led him to say, let not your hearts be troubled? Well, Jesus had said all this because it was obvious that his disciples' hearts were troubled. And we all know that it's no secret that our hearts can be and often are very troubled at the prospects of all we encounter in life what we see in the events of life, the discouragements and fears we have about the present and future, all that can lead to hearts that Jesus knows are troubled hearts. He knows what concerns us. And how is it that Jesus is so sensitive to? How is it that Jesus knows so well how to minister to our troubled hearts? Well, because of, according to the witness of Scripture, and even according to John's very gospel, 
Jesus' own heart was troubled. We see it back in chapter 12, just a page or so back in your Bibles. Chapter 12, verse 27, where Jesus, facing his uh, impending hour of crucifixion, the hour he knows is coming and coming soon, what does Jesus say in chapter 12, verse 27? He says, now is my soul troubled. See that? John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but for this purpose I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Here Jesus is determined to glorify the Father, but he admits that his very soul is troubled at the prospect of what he'll go through in order to do it. And then further on in John 13, right in back of our passage, John 13, when Jesus is predicting that one of the disciples will betray him, in chapter 13 and verse 21, that says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Jesus troubled in his spirit. So Jesus knows. He, he, he gets troubled. He knows what it's like to have a troubled spirit, a troubled heart, a troubled soul like us, yet without sin. So he knows it to the max. We sin before we take much in. He knows to the max what it's like to have a troubled soul because he did not sin in being troubled. We have in Jesus, according to Hebrews 4.15, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin. Who is, according to Isaiah 53.3, a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And also, according to the scriptures, from the very lips of Jesus in our, in our passage here today, and even from the very pen of the psalmist, Psalm 42, our Old, our Old Testament reading, throughout the psalm, what do we see there? We see a troubled soul, don't we? We see a troubled heart. But what do we see? What does the psalmist say in verse 5? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And he goes on like that until finally the end, verse 11. We saw it in our reading that Pam read for us. Hope in God, verse 11 says. He offers the cure. He goes on and on lamenting, but at the end he finally says, The cure, hope in God, verse 11, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. Put your hope in God, our text said here in the sheet, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The cure for a troubled heart is belief in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And the cure for a troubled heart is belief in Jesus and hope and praise of Jesus, praising him, who is the very God who soothes the troubled heart and soul. That's the cure. And you see what Jesus does back here in John chapter 14, verse 1, back to our text at the very beginning. He presents himself as the object of our faith, as the antidote to troubled hearts. You have a troubled heart? Here's what you do. You believe in God, and Jesus here puts himself right on the level with the Father when he proclaims his own deity in our passage here. He says, you believe in the Father, you believe also in me. You believe in me because as we've seen, he'll go, he goes on to explain in, in all the ways that we looked at today. You believe in me because I am God. We have questions like the disciples had. We have fears. We have troubled hearts like these men had. We don't know what he means when he says things like I am in the Father and he is in me. But in salvation, Jesus comes to us in his word, the Bible, by his Holy Spirit, in many ways, he comes to us. He even speaks to us through the faithful witness of his people, the church. He speaks us to, to, through, to us through the church even now as we sit with each other, through the church throughout history as we read the church fathers, 
through the scriptures, he speaks to us. He claims to his own, his claims to his own deity, his words and his works that we see in the Bible and that he has done in our own hearts in regeneration. We see our sin. That's what really troubles our hearts is our sin. We see our sin and yet we see him in his majesty and glory. And he brings us to that point of being overwhelmed with who he really is, the God of all and the Savior of our souls. And we bow before him, and in faith and repentance we call him Lord. Because he's caused us to see that the reason he and the Father are one is because he is God and therefore the only way to God. So it's an exclusive claim, isn't it, to say you're the only way to God. It flies in the face of all that our world embraces. The world wants people who, who say that there are many ways to God. They love you if you say there are many ways to God. The world loves that if we even care about God at all to begin with. But in terms of what Jesus says here, we have no choice as Christians. If we are followers of Jesus, if we truly know him as he's meant to be known and as he's revealed himself to us, then we also have to make the claim and then live by the exclusive claim he makes that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. And we know that because we have indeed found him to be what cures our sin-sick and troubled hearts. He comes into those hearts, doesn't he? And he remakes them. We're new creations. He remakes our hearts, doesn't he? He gives us new hearts, hearts of flesh that beat with his grace, hearts that no longer uh, have a stony obstinance and opposition to the truth of the gospel, but hearts ready to receive and embrace and love the truth that Christ died once for all, to redeem all the sinners he has chosen to redeem and bring us to salvation. And that includes us who believe. Instead of letting us go to the hell we deserve and we, that we desire without him. Because of all this, he's a good and gracious king, isn't he? He's a good and gracious and merciful savior who calms our troubled hearts with himself. Let's pray.